Ruth 3, verses 1 through 18. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is it not Boaz, our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that I say, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother in law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for your word. And I pray that you would open our eyes today and speak through Rick. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning, everyone. Hope everyone is doing well. Um, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. Turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth is in the Old Testament. It's the eighth book of the Bible. And we are currently working our way through the book of Ruth. Today we're looking at Ruth chapter 3. That's the scripture that was just read. And um, we've entitled this sermon series, Hesed. Trying to throw a little, little Hebrew into it, like chesed. Uh, and the reason the sermon series is entitled chesed is because chesed is a key word or a key theme in the book of Ruth. What does chesed mean? It's an Old Testament Hebrew word that means covenant love. It means eternal goodness, unending kindness, unrelenting generosity, unending grace, never-ending compassion. Sound good? It never ends. Good stuff. Good stuff that never ends. That's pretty much what Hesed is. That never comes to an end. It's not emotionalism. So we got to 
check for that. It's not sentiment and it's not emotionalism. What, what Hesed is, is action. Hesed is loving kindness in motion. Hesed is going beyond the call of duty for the sake of another person. So unending, unrelenting, steadfast mercy, kindness towards someone. It's the opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. The complete opposite of what that is. That's what Hesed is, putting, putting aside your own personal interest for the sake of another person. That's what Hesed is. Hesed isn't fickle and it's not flighty. Hesed digs in its heels, gets into a three-point stance, and goes to work. Right? Hesed is resolve, it's commitment, it's loyalty, it's faithfulness demonstrated in sacrifice toward another person. So that is what the word means, and that is the key word or the key theme of the book of Ruth. And we see it illustrated in the story, uh, namely in the life of the person who the book is titled after, Ruth. So we see her displayed, display much hesed in this story toward Naomi, who's her mother-in-law. Did you catch that? Her in-law. She is choosing to show love to her in-law. So much so, and get this, because, you know, and I'm sure everyone in here has wonderful great in-laws and, you know, all these stories about in-laws and, and, and how bad it can go. With, you know, I know that there's other people and at other times, but, you know, I hear, you know, or, or it happens somewhere out there. It's like that uh, the, the husband's always like, well, that's not how mom used to make that dinner or, or stuff like that. Or there's extra stress when the in-laws are coming over because the house has got to be clean. You know, that kind of stuff happens. Here, Ruth is showing Choosing to show steadfast loyalty to her mother-in-law. So much so that she leaves mama, her own mama, her own country, her hometown, leaves there and chooses to go with Naomi to a completely foreign land. Her mother-in-law, y'all. <laughs> like, I can't get past it. Like, some people would say that that's pretty miraculous, that that would happen. And so and it's not just Ruth that displays Hesed in the story. It's also the character Boaz. He shows all kinds of Hesed in the story. He's a wealthy man from Bethlehem, but he's not just wealthy in monetary terms. So it's not just that he has a lot of land and a lot of money, but he's wealthy in his godliness. Like that's really his true wealth that, that he has. He prays blessings over people. He is kind to his employees. He's giving and generous to his employees. And when this Ruth lady, this total stranger, just comes walking, meandering into his field and starts gleaning, he doesn't get upset. He's, he's like, he asks about her, and then he's like, well, yeah, let her glean. And so much so that at the end, he tells his employees, leave some extra for her so she can have more, more than she needs. So that's Hesed. He's showing loving kindness towards someone, generosity, goodness toward another person. And, and in the story, as much Hesed as Ruth shows and as much as Boaz displays, it pales in comparison to who's really showing the love in the story. And what's really being displayed is the Hesed of God. This story is about God's loving covenant. 
This is about the mercy, the grace, the compassion, the goodness, the kindness of God. That, that's what the story is about. It's, in this story, we actually see a microcosm of the great, big, grand story that God is writing in this world. And he is currently writing the story of love. As I speak here, God is actively involved in this room, in this town, in this world, actively, personally involved, writing the story in, in bringing himself to bear in the life of this world and in the life of other people. I mean, just know that this is not an accident. We're not here by accident. This is not some ran, random coincidence. This isn't some, we're not the byproduct of some galactic happenstance. We're not the result of time, pressure, and heat. We're all here on purpose and with a purpose. And that purpose is like the most beautiful thing I have ever learned that God has ever shared with me. And, that, that, and the purpose is God is securing a people for his own possession. And a people that he will spend all of eternity pouring out his love on. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So that is the, the purpose of everything. That's, that's what the story that God is writing, and that, that's why he's writing it. He wants to spend eternity pouring out his graces, the glories of his mercy, lavishing that upon those that are his people. Now, here's the reality. We, in real time, we often don't see that playing out, do we? We oftentimes don't, can't see past, you know, what's right in front of us. Sometimes we look at the world and what's happening around us in particular, and, and we don't see how God's wonderful plan, loving story, how's that all happening around me? Am I missing out? Am I a part of it? Like, we're in the midst of this chaos and distraction, the messiness of life, and it's hard to see God's hand at work in our lives. And that's often the case, and that's why it's so good to spend some time in the book of Ruth. Because the book of Ruth trains us. It actually gives us confidence to know that God is at work in us and through us even when we don't see him. That he is at work behind the scenes when it's not all that apparent. That he's back there doing what only God can do. So as we read and we study this story, it helps to build this confidence. It builds our faith. That there is this loving God who is personal, who cares, and who is actively involved in our lives, bringing to bear this wonderful story of grace that he's writing. I mean, this, the, the book of Ruth, what it actually helps us to do is to understand that God's will, God's desires for you and for this world cannot be diminished, it cannot be diminished, and it cannot be derailed. And the way the Bible says is that God's will cannot be thwarted. It can't be stopped. It cannot be stopped. Psalm chapter 57 verse 2 says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Not some things, not even most things, but accomplishes 
all things, that there was a time before time where God, before the foundations of the world, created everything and with a plan already in mind. He already had the end already established. And so there is nothing that we can do that can keep God from accomplishing his good and loving purposes in and through us. Is that good news? Nothing Nothing can stop God from doing what he's going to do. And what God does is always good. It's always right and it's always just. We don't always understand it, especially in the mess of it. But that's the good news. So as we go through Ruth chapter 3, here's the question we need to ask and to answer. Do you firmly believe that God is bringing about his loving purposes in and through your life? Do you firmly believe that God is at work in your life bringing about what he said he would do? What he established long, long ago? Do you live with the hope knowing that you are part of the the story that God is writing? Do you live with the hope knowing that you're part of the story that God is writing? Um, Growing as a follower of Jesus means growing in our confidence that God is at work, that God is at play, that God isn't sitting back somewhere like he just created the world and spun it off and he's sitting back, you know, drinking sweet tea and just wondering how it's going to turn out that that's not God he knows exactly what's going to happen and he's personally involved so growing as a follower of Jesus means that even when we don't understand what's happening even when it doesn't make sense even when it doesn't appear that God is actively involved in our lives even when 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 it's really really difficult for us we can have peace of mind knowing that God is there that God is around, that he, he's working. It's, what's happening is not random. We can survive these dark moments that we all live through, and we all have dark seasons, difficult seasons, right? But we can have peace of mind. We can actually have joy knowing that we're a part of what God is doing and that there is an end, a good at play there, that he, we, we can need to trust in his hesed. We need to trust in his sovereignty. Trust that God knows what he's doing and he has the ability to do it. We have to trust that God does work causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Romans chapter 8. So with that, let's kind of move into the story. And what I'm going to do, and I think this is going to be fun because I like, I like telling stories. Not the made up kind. I mean the storytelling. And I just want to back up and go back to like, Ruth chapter 1 and just get a big old head start and like run head steam into chapter 3 and that might be good if, if someone hasn't been here the last couple of weeks. So we're going to summarize the story. So here it goes. The, the story of Ruth and the book of Ruth begins with God working in not so subtle a way. There is a famine and the famine is what God has brought down to bear upon Israel and the reason why he's punishing them and the reason why is because of their sin because everyone is living in accordance to what is right in their own eyes as opposed to following God. So there's a famine, and God's in charge of famines or no famines, right? He's in charge of the rain, whether there's rain or not, whether there's crops or not. He causes the grass to grow. God is in charge of all of these things. So during the famine, there's this guy named Elimelech, and instead of repenting and turning to God, he leads his family to somewhere where there may be food. So he leads his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, 
the Cajun brothers, and he leads them out of the country, out of the country into Moab, a completely separate nation. That's like a whole other country over there, Moab. And in what's going on in Moab is that they're sworn enemies of Israel. Blood enemies of Israel. Pagan, godless, worshiping all sorts of other gods, false deities, and all kinds of stuff. So that's where Elimelech thinks it's a good idea to take his family. And there's food there, so for, for those purposes, I guess that works. But what happens is that while in Moab, Elimelech dies. He passes on. The two sons, Malon and Chili, they find a couple of uh, Moabite women, and they marry them. So Orpah and Ruth. Then some time passes, I guess, and something bad happens, and the two sons die. And so that leaves Naomi widowed and without children, particularly without sons, which is a really bad thing back in the day. Because not only is she now having to deal with the sorrow and the grief of having lost her husband and her two sons, but how is she going to make it? How is she going to provide for herself? And to add to that, what's going to happen to the family line? This was a big deal back then. Like, I guess the family line is dead. The family name is dead. Where is it going to go? So that, that's where Naomi is at this point. And then God, because God is the God of Hesed, he displays Hesed and he offers Israel an opportunity to repent. And they do. And they listen to God. And so they repent, turn back to God. And God stops the famine and he blesses the nation with food. And all the way in Moab, Naomi hears about it. So she says, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. She starts on her way, and then it seems like Orpah and Ruth, the two daughters-in-law, are going to come with her, and she convinced, tries to convince them, no, you might stay here. You don't want to go with me. I'm old. I can't provide any more sons for you, for you to marry. Your chances of, of remarriage are way better if you stay home, stay in your own town, stay around your kinfolk, stay around your friends where you grew up. If your chances of remarriage are way better. Orpah, she says, you know what, that makes sense, I'm going to stay back. Ruth, however, the scripture says she clings to Ruth. I'm sorry, she clings to Naomi. Ruth clings to Naomi. And what has happened is that Ruth has converted. She has become a follower of the one and only true living God, the God of Israel. So that's where Ruth is. She jumps in with both feet into the faith and by the way that's what it means to be a follower of jesus like a fo- being a follower of jesus isn't dipping our toe into the water that's not what it means it's being all in it's jumping with both feet into the deep end that that that's what it looks like to be a christian so that's what ruth does she leaves her family she leaves her home she leaves her nation she goes with her mother-in-law across national borders into a foreign nation and why? She's showing her hesed toward God. She's showing her loving commitment to God by displaying it in Naomi or to Naomi, by being loving and committed to Naomi. So that's where we are. Then they arrive in Bethlehem. They arrive there, and the locals, the local women, see Naomi. And they start saying, Is that you? Naomi, is that you? It's been, what, 10 years? been like 10 years or so and Naomi like snaps back at these people and it's like don't call me Naomi call me Mara Naomi means pleasant Mara means bitter 
she changed her name from pleasant to bitter. And the reason why is that she's looking at her life, and she's looking at her circumstances and what's happened to her, and all she sees is her sorrow and her grief and her loss. And legit, these are legitimate heartaches, right? But that's all she's seeing. When, when she changes her name to Mara, she's saying, I may be back home, but I have no hope. I have nothing to live for. I have no hope. All she sees is gloom and despondency. So they arrive in Bethlehem, and it's at the start of the harvest season, the barley harvest season. They get there, so Ruth, she goes straight to work. She gets up, and she goes to glean. And what to glean is to go into a field as the farm workers are out there harvesting the crop, and, and you walk behind them, and you're just picking up what they drop on the ground. And you get to keep it. God had made a provision in the commands or earlier in the Bible. He made a provision. Poor people could do this as, as a way of providing for themselves. So that way they didn't have to starve or, or anything like that. So she's out there, and it just so happens, and here's where it starts getting really good. It just so happens that the field that she's gleaning in belongs to this man named Boaz. And in chapter 2, verse 3, it, the, the language is really interesting. And Brent mentioned this last week, that her chance chanced upon. Her, see, like it's, it's trying to say that the odds against her having walked upon this field at this time are astronomical and unbelievable. And it's not that the writer believes in luck. Like he's trying to make it sound like this is by some like weird, incredible like st- uh, stroke, stroke of luck that she found this field. But we don't believe in chance. The Bible doesn't speak about luck. God is in charge of everything. So the point here is that God is leading her this way, right? That it's not, it's not just randomness. She did just happen to cast a lot. Like God led her to this field, guided her somehow orchestrated, choreographed her steps to end up in Boaz's field. All right, so that's what God is doing. Boaz notices Ruth, and he hadn't seen her before. He's like, well, and he asks the employees, like, who's that? Well, she's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. Now, Boaz had heard about her. Like, he'd heard about this woman who had left her kinfolk and traveled with her mother-in-law across international borders so he knows that she is extreme like she's showing hesed toward Naomi and as a result of that he says you know what just glean in my field you don't need to go anywhere else just glean in my field Uh, on top of that he ensures her protection dangerous times back then so he ensures her protection and he says I'll even make sure that there's enough water that's drawn out of the well for you And then he even invites her to lunch where everybody's hanging out and having lunch. In verse 14, he gives her bread and vinegar to dip the bread in. And just so that you know, this is not white distilled vinegar. This is Eastern North Carolina style Stevenson's apple cider vinegar. Barbecue sauce vinegar. This is the goods. This is the good stuff. Clearly, man Boaz is a man of hesed because he's given the Stevenson's barbecue sauce to Ruth. Anyway, 
play around with the text a little bit. All right. So after lunch, Boaz says to his employees, hey, make sure you even leave some extra around just to make sure that she has more, more than enough. And at the end of the day, Ruth ends up with 40 pounds of grain, which I've never gleaned, but apparently that is an incredibly ridiculous amount of actual grain to glean in one day. So she takes these 40-some pounds of grain, goes back home to, to where Naomi is, and Naomi asks the question, where in the world did you glean that you get this one? She might be suspecting that she stole it, for all we know. Like, what in the world are you doing with this much barley? And Ruth answers as well, I was in the field of this guy named Boaz. And in verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi first prays for Boaz. They ask that God would bless him. And then as soon as she does that, she instantly turns to Ruth and says, Ruth, that's one of our relatives. That's one of our closest relatives. And what she's thinking is maybe Boaz can be a kinsman redeemer. And with that, this bitter woman who all she could see was the lack of joy and the destitution of her situation there's a glimmer of hope in her. So let's just review that. What are the odds that they happen to arrive in Bethlehem at the start of the harvest season? And what are the odds that the field, the first field that Ruth goes to, happens to belong to a very godly man? Because keep in mind, these are the days of the judges. And the way the book judges ends is with everyone doing according to what was right in his own eyes. So these are disobedient, faithless generation. So what are the odds that she stumbles across one of the good ones? And then, not only that, not only does she so just happen to stumble across this one field during the grain harvest when God all of a sudden has allowed for there to be a harvest, and not only is he kind and generous, but... He's a close relative. Like, what are the odds of that? And that's, that's the point that the story is trying to get to. And the point is, this isn't random. This isn't chance. This isn't coincidence. The point is that God is leading. God is super intending over everything that is happening. It's not chance. It's not coincidence. It's not luck. This is a display of God's covenant love. And God isn't simply providing the food that they so need. God is providing a kinsman redeemer for them. And I don't know if any of you at this point say, well, man, that can be rigged. That, that could be coincidence up to that point. Once we get into chapter 3, it blows that theory out of the water. There is no way that what is happening here is simply random chance or coincidence. But we'll get there in a second. I want to define what a kinsman redeemer is is all right when god gave moses the commandments the pentateuch you know, more than just the ten commandments right all the law the statutes that he provided his people in the old testament he made a provision that a relative a near relative was to be responsible for another relative if that relative fell into like financial crisis so a kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative 
that had sufficient financial resources to help a disadvantaged family member. And back then, and this wasn't too uncommon, if a person found themselves like in really, really bad financial trouble or in debt, they would actually sell themselves intentionally into slavery because that's the only way they're going to do it. So they would sell themselves, say, well, my life belongs to you because I can't pay you back or I'm in such financial crisis. And what a kinsman redeemer would do is that they would come in and they would buy their relative out. So in essence, freeing them, paying their debt, freeing them, buying them out, buying out their debt. That clear? That's what a kinsman redeemer does. Uh, Closely associated with that was the custom of leveret marriage. So let me explain leveret marriage. This one's fun. Um, what, what would happen was it was sanctioned, it was legal, and God made this provision in Deuteronomy 25 that if a, a woman became a widow, so her husband died, and that husband had not fathered any children, then it was sanctioned that the woman would marry her husband's brother, her brother-in-law, which is by, uh, for us like weird and icky and what, this is gross, and who would do that? The reason why is because it would protect the family name. It would keep the family name from dying. So it, it maintained a lineage because the, what the widow would marry her brother-in-law, they would hopefully father a child. The child would receive the name of the initial husband, so the first brother. And then that child would receive whatever inheritance, so land, name, whatever belonged to the first husband. So God made this provision to protect widows, to provide for them, to protect family lines, the clan and everything, that there would be offspring that would receive an inheritance, to buy people out of poverty and debt and enslavement if that was in fact the case. So you see that this is the role of the kinsman redeemer. And what, what's happening is that as soon as Ruth comes back and reports, I glean in the field of a man named Boaz, there's that glimmer of hope in Naomi because maybe just maybe he will marry Ruth maybe just maybe he'll be the kinsman redeemer and bring in and fulfill this chance for hope that we're having all right now it really gets fun in the story so Naomi goes to work Naomi goes to work she concocts what I believe to be a moronic plan, a completely stupendously moronic, blatantly, patently ridiculous plan that had no business ever being concocted or schemed. She had no business coming up with this plan. She's about to play matchmaker, but not just matchmaker, she's playing with fire. She's coming up with this idea that's dangerous and actually puts everything at risk unnecessarily. So let me explain. So now we get into Ruth chapter 3. Ruth, Naomi calls Ruth and starts to share her plan with her. And in verse 2, she points out, Boaz is out winnowing barley at the threshing floor. The threshing floor was this place, it would be outside the city, usually up like on a mountaintop, a hilltop or something where you get a lot of wind. It was breezy. And usually the top surface would be pretty much just solid rock. It wasn't dirt or rocky. It was just kind of a flat, like a floor, but just a big piece of rock. 
And the men, after the harvest was gathered from the field, they chuck all this barley, the husk and all, up there, and they beat it to remove the grain and the, from the husk and everything. And you just have a big old mess on the ground. So they, they take pitchforks, shovels, something like that, big old plates, and they take everything and they just throw it up in the air. And the wind would carry off the shaft, that light, feathery, you know, leafy stuff, just drive it away. And what would drop down is the actual grain. So then they would gather that. And this would go on for a while. There was a lot of winnowing to be, to be done. And the men would stay out there for days or weeks until everything was winnowed. Away from their wives, away from their family, just as long as it took. They had to stay out there to protect it too. They don't want thieves to come and steal anything from it. Now, one thing to know as we get into the story is that oftentimes what would happen, prostitutes would go to the threshing floor. Quite frankly, it was an easy trick. The guy's away from his wife, he's away from home, yada, yada. Okay? You got to know that so that this story can make sense. So Boaz is at the threshing floor, and in verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth, take a bath, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, go to the threshing floor, but don't let anyone, including Boaz, see you. So this is Naomi's quick guide to catching a man. Clean up. I think most men would agree. We prefer our ladies clean. Uh, Put on some Chanel number five, right? Something nice, something nice. Put on your best couture dress, you know, whatever, whatever is your thing. And then act sneaky like a ninja. (laughs) Which I think most guys like the thought of a ninja wife. I don't know why. Maybe it's in our top ten. Uh, maybe. Anyway, so that's the plan. That's her, that's her guide to how do you catch a man. And then she says, after he's had his dinner, maybe had a couple of cocktails or his nightcap or whatever, in verse 4, Naomi tells her to quietly go over to where he's sleeping, roll up the covers over his feet, so expose his feet, and then lie down by his feet. Huh? So put yourself, especially ladies, I guess, put yourself in Ruth's shoes. This is what I would call a drop a jaw moment. This is a jaw dropping moment in the life of Ruth. Okay, dearest mother in law, let me get this straight. You want me to act the part, basically, quasi prostitute. Go up to this guy I barely know in the middle of the night. Do this gesture, which could only mean I'm open for business. And ask him to marry me? Yes, that is exactly the plan. That is drop a jaw. That is, there is no way. Like, who thinks that's a good idea? Who could possibly think that that makes any sense whatsoever? None. And what I think is just as patently absurd as the plan is Ruth, how she responds to it. In verse 5, all that you say, I will do. And I commend Ruth. 
And Scripture commends Ruth for her hesed toward Naomi. Like, I respect her respect for her mother-in-law. Like, that, I mean, that's to be commended. But, oh my goodness, this is not wise. This is not a good idea in the slightest. At the very least, she could ruin her reputation. And what if Boaz, he's a single dude. What if he misinterprets everything? And he thinks he's open for business and he takes, makes a motion that way. What then? This is a terrible idea. Despite the risk and the danger, Ruth goes along with the plan. And in verse 8, it's the middle of the night. Boaz wakes up. He's startled by the fact that there's a woman lying at his feet. She wasn't there before. And in verse 9, he asks, who are you? And she answers, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. So here's the scene. Here's the scene. Boaz is asleep. He's abruptly awakened from his REM sleep. In his startled, groggy state, this woman says, Dude, you are a blood relative of my dead husband. Will you marry me? Drop a jaw. Like this whole story is jaw dropping. It's absurd. It is ridiculous that this is happening. That they came up with the plan that Ruth actually says okay and that she actually goes through with the whole thing. Let me, let me just pile on how ridiculous this is. Ruth is from Moab. Boaz is from Israel. She is way, 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 way younger than he is. She gleans in the fields. She's so poor. He's a landowner. They don't know each other. They met once in a field. And she comes up in the middle of the night, wakes him up, quasi looking the part of a prostitute, and says, will you marry me? Does this make any sense whatsoever? It doesn't. It makes zero sense that, that they would go through with this. And what happens is that Boaz agrees to it. He's like into it. Look at verses 10 through 11. May you be blessed of the Lord. So, so Boaz is talking to Ruth. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. So he's saying that her hesed toward him now is even greater than the hesed he's shown Naomi. Better than the first, by not going after young men, whether rich or poor, or poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So he's flattered. He agrees to it. The story's not over. We read in the next two verses, verse 12 and 13, that there's more drama to be added to the story. And it's that, unfortunately, Boaz isn't the closest relative. And the protocol of the day was that the dibs on being kinsman redeemer went to the closest relative and then it moved on from there. So Boaz, being a godly man, loved God, worshiped God, obeyed God, he said, you know what, I'm going to go through the right channels. There's this other guy, he's actually closer relative. I'm going to go up to him in the morning. I'm going to give him dibs if he wants dibs on this whole kinsman redeemer deal. And if he doesn't, though, I've got it. I've got it. So they go to sleep, they wake up early, early in the morning, Boaz gives Ruth more grain, so she has even more to take home to Naomi, uh, and he makes sure that she gets out of there before anyone else wakes up. 
doesn't want her reputation to be sullied. So what's happening here could easily be interpreted badly. Ruth gets home, and you know Naomi's probably been up all night, worried, sick. Like, how's this going? What's happening? I mean, a lot could go wrong with this plan. And the chapter ends in verse 18 with Naomi's confidence that Boaz will make sure that they have a kinsman redeemer. Whether it's this other guy or whether it's Boaz, they're covered, right? In other words, the chapter ends with hope. All of a sudden, Naomi turned Mara, turns back to Naomi. And this, this is what God's Hesed does. She was a follower of God. She went through a trial, a troubling season. It upset her. God worked it out. And now she's filled with hope. And it so happens like that with us as well. So what's the point of the story? What's the point of this absurd story? And it's this. God worked it out so that it would work out. Regardless of what it was that the people actually said or did, it was going to work out. God let this preposterous plan play out in order to show that it's only him who made it successful. Because this should not have worked. This should not have worked. Too much could have gone wrong. Too much danger involved with everything there. Think about this. Think about this. And I've heard Ruth taught several times and preached, and, and I think this always gets missed. What should Naomi have done? Would it not have been easier slash wiser for her simply go up to Boaz? Boaz, you're a close relative. Would you marry Ruth and be a kinsman redeemer? No. Instead, Naomi goes for like a plan of last resort. She goes for the last ditch effort when there's no need for a last ditch effort. It's equivalent that football game starts, first drive of the, pl- of, the, of the game, right? So it's first and 10, you're sitting out your 30, you got the whole game ahead of you. You can, you can do whatever plays you want the rest of the game. Score is tied. And all of a sudden, you run a fumble ruski, double reverse, halfback pass, hook and lateral, which you would only run maybe if you're down by seven in the last second of the game. She pulls that play out first, first play of the game. Like, that's how ludicrous the whole thing is. And it worked. It worked. And it's not that God told her to do this either. So we don't need to commend her for her great risk-taking faith. God didn't tell her to do this. All she needed to do was walk up to the man who's already proven to be godly and say, would you extend Hesed in this way? And chances are he would have. But see, this is the point. This point is that this went down in such a crazy, absurd way that only God gets credit for it. It can only be explained as of God. And that, folks, is the point. That's the point of this story. God is writing his story, and it's going to go down, and nothing is going to get in the way. Nothing is going to stop it. God's accomplishments will accomplish everything that he sets out to do every time and God works like this in our lives not just once or twice but throughout our lives he often lets us do the preposterous or go through the preposterous so that it becomes abundantly clear that he's the one that's working it out for us 
Have you ever sat down and actually contemplated your life and everything that you've been through and where you are now and seen how God has directed you? You know, this, some of you have heard this story, but back in 1981, this family of four, Hispanic family, moves to North Carolina and we fly into Fayetteville Airport, the most luxurious of all airports. And the reason why is my dad, Hector, he had gotten a job in Southern Pines, a textile company. And the employer, I'm going to pick you guys up, I'm going to take you to where you need to be, and that all's well. So we land, and we're stood up. They don't know, my parents don't know any English. I'm eight, my sister's four. We've got two suitcases, and some cash in the pocket. And this is back when there weren't many Spanish-speaking people around or anything. This is 30-plus years ago. So here's my family at the airport in Fayetteville trying to figure out what to make it. And, and I don't even know the specifics of the story, but somehow my dad makes a few, con- few phone calls. There happens to be this textile company plant in Anger. They offered him the job doing the same thing he would have been doing in Southern Pines. And so that's how we end up in Anger. And then why, why they, I say they, we, we stayed in Andrew, I don't understand, because no one around here spoke Spanish. They didn't speak English. We were Catholic at the time, or, or if we had to say we were one thing, it would have been that. There are no Catholic churches around. We didn't know anything about Eastern-style North Carolina barbecue. I know why God brought us here now, though. <laughs> no, but, I mean, they stayed. And it really makes no sense whatsoever. And then we were invited to this little rural country, Southern Baptist Church in Anger. Pretty much a complete antithesis from a religious standpoint from what we would have ever experienced. And everything's in English. Not just English, Anger English. And they stayed and they stuck. And the whole family heard about Jesus and everyone got saved and got baptized. And you fast forward 30 years later, and there's now a church, Anthem Church in Anger, that would not be here. If God wasn't clearly working it out, and it took 30 years, and I don't think the story's over, but it took 30 years for us, I think, for us to even understand why this happened. Because it made no sense. It made zero sense sense and this is how God works is sovereignty superintending and leading and he's like that will happen that will happen and in the midst a lot of drama and a lot of turmoil and a lot of issues a lot of heartache a lot of bad seasons in the midst of that and and I, I think there's two things we should glean from that um, one Trust God. Trust his plan. Trust his sovereignty. Trust his power. He's wise. He's good. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. Then take comfort that you can't mess it up. Like I, I often hear people like worry about their past sin or their current sin and, and, and wondering if they're ever going to mess up God's plan for their life. Folks, let me let you at ease. You cannot mess up God's plan for your life. You can't. Not you, not your sin, not your neighbor's sin, not a family member's sin. Nothing that you do or don't do 
can mess up God's hands in your life. Nothing. His will cannot be thwarted. And I find massive comforts in that. That little old me can outsend the power of God's sovereignty. That being said, I may not be able to mess up God's eternal plan, but I sure can make a mess of things now. Right? So how we live and what we do does matter. I can choose to make things easier, better, simpler for myself, or way more difficult. So if I choose to walk down the path of obedience to God, walking in accordance with his word, it won't make life easy, but it's easier than the alternative. The alternative means guilt and shame and all the consequences that come from going down the path of sinful behavior. And we've seen this in people's lives, right? They walk down this path and it's just heartache and it's drama all the time. So we can choose I can't mess up God's plan. It's going to be what it's going to be. But in the walking in the story, I can choose to either make it easier on myself or more difficult on myself. So it's better, husbands, to love your wives than to hold a grudge. Right? Parents, it's way better to discipline or disciple your children than to neglect them. It's better to tell the truth than to tell a lie. It's better to guard your eyes and what you watch than to look at pornography or anything like that. Like, it's just way better to serve your church and serve your neighbor than to live selfishly. It's way better to display hesed, to be gracious and forgiving and merciful and compassionate thoughtful and kind help the poor help the needy help the widows help the orphans it's way better it's way better to promote the gospel to further this story that god is writing in this world you know for christians life is hard it's not that we make it easy it's just way easier if we're walking in obedience to god as opposed to walking in contradiction to what he desires for us so the big, big point of the story is just that, that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that his plans will take place, his, his will cannot be thwarted. There is one other point of the story there, and it's this. Every one of us, every single one of us in this room is in need of a kinsman redeemer. We're all born into debt. We're born into slavery, the debt of sin, the, the slavery of sin and its consequences. It's power over us. We're born into that. We need a kinsman redeemer. We need Jesus. So what did Jesus do? He's God, and he left heaven, and he came to earth. He was born through the virgin birth so that he could become man, become like one of us. He took on flesh and blood. He became a blood relative, and he is wealthy. And he is wealthy in righteousness and godliness. So much so that he could go to a cross and there take your sin and my sin upon himself, pay the debt, wipe it clean, and then take his righteousness and bestow it upon us. He's the great kinsman redeemer. He's the redeemer. 
And that's the gospel. That's Jesus. That's Psalm 57, verses 2 and 3. You know, I read the first one, the first verse there earlier. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. That is Jesus. He sent forth his truth and his love in the person of Christ. And he came to accomplish for us everything that God has purposed for us. That's why he came. He will accomplish all things for me. That's why Jesus came. To make sure that God's plan gets written out in and through your life. That's why he came. So this is the story that God is writing. And all we need to do, right? Like we want to have a role in this story that God is writing. All we need to do is respond in faith. So there's that first moment where we humble ourselves before him. And we repent of our sin and we embrace Jesus who he is and what he did. And we repent of our sins. We give our lives over to him. And that's the first moment. And then from there on, we enjoy a life knowing that he's leading us, guiding us, protecting us, providing. Now, what's it mean to respond in faith? Trust that God knows what he's doing, that he has a plan for you. What's it mean to respond in faith? Walk in a humble obedience each and every day of your lives. So I'm going to ask everyone to just to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want to give everyone a, a, a minute to respond, whether it's just simply in praise of God and for what he does and what he has done, what he will do, that his will cannot be thwarted. Just praise him for bringing you to where you are. Or maybe you need to respond in that you haven't been trusting him. So just ask for God, for him through his Holy Spirit to build your faith. To know and live as if he is in charge because he is. And if you've never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, you can do that right now where you're sitting. Confess your sin and embrace the grace that God gives through His Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, Father, I praise you for this morning, for bringing us here, Lord. You knew that we would be in this room before the foundations of the world. And you cause all things to work together, Lord, in such a way that it has brought us here today to hear this specific message from you, to read this text from you. And I praise you, Lord. I praise you that you know what you're doing, that you are wise and in control, that you are over everything. Lord, that you're so powerful that nothing can hinder you. Nothing can stay your hand from accomplishing what you set forth. 
What wonderful comfort that gives to your people, Lord. What wonderful comfort it is for those who are followers of Jesus to know that you cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you. Lord, help us to see our lives in the midst of this greater story that you are writing, Lord, that the moments, the seasons of difficulty, Lord, they don't surprise you and that there is a dawn that you've written into the story, Lord, and let us have the faith to endure and to persevere, to do so with joy and with peace and with confidence, Lord. Thank you for Jesus, for being a kinsman redeemer, to save us out of our debt, out of our slavery, out of our sin. Thank you for grace upon grace. Lord, we pray this morning, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, above all things, may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.